Massive load boards. Many of you use them, most of you tolerate them. But for those unaware, the Wild West is still alive and kicking virtually with tens of thousands of brokers and carriers attempting to haggle via the phone and internet. But what happens when bad actors take advantage of more than a low-budget Nicolas Cage movie? And what are the consequences for platforms who charge users but fail to curb fraud? Well, folks, we're going to find out in this episode of Loaded and Rolling. Welcome to Loaded and Rolling. I'm your host, Thomas Watson. Double brokering has existed since the dawn of time. Once the first cart made a delivery, there was another who claimed to have a cart, only to sell it and profit off of someone who actually had one. But fast forward to the modern day, we have an environment where organized rings of double brokers operate internationally, with legions of fake dispatchers and false motor carrier numbers. In this environment, users of third-party load boards often fall victim to double brokering schemes and cost the industry hundreds of millions of dollars annually. Joining me to talk about what this means for the freight industry and what we can do about it is Craig Fuller, founder and CEO of FreightWaves. Craig recently wrote a piece outlining the various ways fraud takes place on massive load boards and is joining us today to talk about how we can tame this wild west of third-party load boards. Craig, welcome. Pleasure to have you on. Yeah, happy to be here. So talking about the article, uh, Wall Street Journal originally posted on, I think, April 26th. They wrote some stuff about the massive fraud. What kind of influenced you to start writing and adding into it uh, compared to like, this is a problem, but a lot of folks don't really know how big of a problem. Well, it's it's really grown exponentially over the last couple of, really the last couple of years, but certainly has uh, accelerated in the last 12 months. And the primary reason, if you think about the COVID cycle, uh, a lot of freight brokerages went out and hired offshore call centers, offshore resources to scale up because that was the easiest way for them to bring on re to, to bring on people to sort of handle the volume of freight they were handling. But when the market slowed down, uh, the, as an effort to sort of pull back on that infrastructure, they ended up basically letting a lot of those uh, folks that they had trained, that were trained on how to broker, uh, let them go. And in the process of doing so, a lot of those folks were trained and now uh, understood how freight worked and have found a really lucrative trade uh, in, in basically committing load board fraud. That's an interesting point because I know we hear a lot of freight tech companies and consultants talk about saving costs by offshoring. Latin American countries, Ukraine and other parts of the world had huge amounts of dispatching services. But I didn't know about if you laid them off, what would they do now? Well, you trained them on, on really how to use the load boards. You've trained them on the sort of tricks of the trade. Uh, and if you think about the crime, in aggregate, we're talking a lot of money. You know, uh, I think the number I read, uh, Triumph had suggested that it was $700 million. That is a big, that's a big crime. But when you think about individually, the crimes that we're talking about are in the couple hundred dollars for a fuel advance fraud or potentially $1,000 or $2,000 on a, on a transaction on a load fraud. So we're in a situation where the, the individual crime and the way that the U.S. laws work is they have to sort of prove that this is sort of an organized crime. It's very difficult to do this when it's offshore. So they look at the individual amounts. They're not enough to sort of get excited. There are much bigger crimes that the FBI has to go investigate around the world. 
uh, that have a lot larger sums of money. And let's let's be frank here. Load board fraud in itself is a very confusing topic for people who don't understand how the trucking industry really works. And how load boards traditionally work. This is what always, when you're working, you don't think about it. But literally right now, I could just call. Let's say you're a broker with a load. I'm a carrier. We're on this third-party board. I give you an MC number. You check me in the system. Okay, yeah, you're the carrier. Let's make a deal. Yeah, it's, it is... I mean, it is sort of absurd that our industry is as important and as critical as it is and as big as it is, but we're still using basically technology that was, you know, in different form and factors was invented in the 1970s. Then it was introduced onto the internet. And then we've had a situation where it sort of evolved to mobile and into the cloud. But at, at its core function, you know, hosting loads that used to be at the truck stop for, for drivers that would find the loads at the truck stop, um, that fundamental has not fundamental sort of a way of finding capacity has not changed. I mean, that's, that's a pretty ridiculous thing. And I think on the outside, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons that the, the authorities are probably not going to take these crimes very serious is because it seems absurd as an industry as big as trucking would still operate with this technology that really has not evolved. That's what blows my mind because these load boards oftentimes are very large and third party. There's concentrations and then you have a small brokerage boards if you signed up, but you pay a subscription as well to use it, whether you're a carrier or a broker. Is there a fear that part of this reason on the crackdowns, if you're the provider, is that, well, maybe if I actually do crack down, I may lose a lot of subscribers? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons that we haven't seen an aggressive sort of policing by the load board parties themselves. So number one is, I think, to your point, is if you do that, you're turning off subscriptions. Is basically you're eliminating um, a subscriber, or in, in many cases, these could be large subscriber pools. I mean, you could have dozens or hundreds of individual accounts that you would have to get rid of. So that's the first issue that you end up with. The second issue is that the systems, in order to actually affect it, in order to actually manage it, you have to make investments around security. Um, and I haven't seen substantial amounts of R&D investment going into managing security. It certainly isn't something that we hear um, DAT talk about very much. Now, Truck Stop, on the other hand, has RMIS, which uh, is they, they acquired a couple of years ago. Uh, and is uh, really a carrier compliance tool that they've built and are building into the workflow. They've been much more progressive. I did an interview with Kendra Tucker, uh, the CEO of TruckStop, a couple of weeks ago, um, and she was, you know, she was very out and open about we need to solve this problem. We need to go out and aggressively attack it. I think, you know, admitting that you have a problem is the is yeah. the first uh, sort of step in that, and then seeing technology investments uh, go through uh, into the systems and into the processes is encouraging, but there's still a lot more that needs to be done. And trying to like, it feels like trying to eat an elephant. Where do you start? You know, financial services we had with the financial crisis, we have FinTech. It feels like if I want to go on like a Stripe or a PayPal or some kind of authentication, when I deal with that type of money, but also these load boards are facilitating commerce and transactions. That's right. Is there something where the financial industry can have an influence on how maybe we police this because it is a form of commerce going on the platform? Well, let's think about the introduction of credit cards on the internet. Yeah. Um, so if you go back 30 years ago when credit cards, when the internet sort of first came out, e-commerce was sort of coming about, 
um, you had a situation where people were using credit cards on the internet. Um, and it was a cottage industry, but it was, it was growing really quickly, but it was still a relatively small industry of that. You could accept a payment on the internet. You know, I, I am old enough to remember my first internet transaction and it was very clunky. Like you had to call in to confirm and it was not a smooth transaction. Um, well, all of a sudden you saw over, it wasn't suddenly, but over the course of a couple of, of years, people started to accept credit card transactions on the internet without any friction. In other words, it could, it would be basically automated and you could make these purchases. You didn't have to call in. You didn't have to prove that you were, there was no, you know, at one point, one of the credit card companies would send me something in the mail and I had to like prove that I lived there. I mean, it was ridiculous, but they all realized that they uh, were trying to streamline the transactions and they did that. The problem was, out of that started to become the proliferation of fraud. And um, Visa and MasterCard, Discover and Amex, along with a lot of the banks, realized that if they don't solve the, sol if they don't take the fraud problem serious, that the entire confidence that consumers would have and the merchants would have and the banks would have uh, towards using credit cards on the internet wouldn't exist. I, I mean, you're, you're younger than I am. Yeah. Um, you may not remember a time when there was a lot of advice putting out by media and others, don't put your credit card on the internet. Like that's how you get your credit card information stolen. There was no encryption. PCI is a concept of payment card industry, which has come together. The PCI compliance, which anyone is in commerce would know what I'm talking about. PCI compliance is the governing rules around accepting card transactions on the internet. And the reason that the banks and MasterCard and Visa and Amex and Discover came together was they realized that the entire their entire business model was at risk if they didn't solve this problem. And I think this is the same type of action that I would love to see the 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 load boards come together. They compete, they compete aggressively. Um, it is in many ways an oligopoly between two of the major load boards, DET and Truckstop. Uh, there's a, as you mentioned, there's a lot of other uh, participants in the ecosystem, whether brokers have proprietary load boards, there's some niche load boards that deal with other parts of it. But this is a problem that the load boards have to take serious and have to take the leadership on. It cannot be something that they can delegate to the authorities because the, the same thing happened with credit cards. Visa and MasterCard could have easily said, and they would have been correct, this is not our problem. This is the problem that these are crimes that need to be investigated by the authorities. But if they had done that, we would never have seen the explosion of e-commerce because no consumer would have trusted using an e-commerce system or a merchant on the internet or putting their credit card into like this virtual world, not knowing if it was safe. They took it very serious. It took them a while, but they got there. And I think it's now time for DAT, Truck Stop, and the others to also do the same. They need to come together. They need to put their competitive um, uh, uh, issues aside and come together and solve this problem because it really is something that is serious that's going to put our entire industry at risk. Well, that's the factor protocols and factors of payment. It feels like right now the, the industry being so fragmented, oh, well, your factoring company should know, or maybe your carrier compliance should know. I'm a third party. I'm just going to provide this. But it, is there a missed opportunity to say, I'm going to pioneer this like credit card companies. Let's develop a unified standard of verification. So that way, when you're using it, I can trust your platform. You can gain market share through trust. And it feels like that's just a missed opportunity. It is a massive missed opportunity. And they're the only parties that can actually do something about it. Let me explain why. The factoring companies 
um, have one sort of system, but they're fat, effectively factoring and dealing with the risk of the payment element. They certainly have to underwrite the carrier and determine whether the carrier, the broker is legitimate. Let's, let's not disguise that. But when you're talking about an open marketplace where commerce takes place, where you like those companies, the factoring companies have responsibilities to, to manage their own levels of fraud. But when it comes to a marketplace, just as in Visa MasterCard have to manage their networks to make sure that the transactions of the parties that access their networks are safe and are verified and are not doing things that are fraudulent. If they find fraudulent activity, they immediately shut it down, like very aggressively shut it down. That is the same level of responsibility that these load boards have is they are marketplaces and the folks that interact on those marketplaces should hold them accountable for managing fraud. Because if they don't, then we we have a much bigger issue in the industry, which is the proliferation and success of the brokerage industry um, is going to be stunted and potentially at risk if all of a sudden shippers that have an enormous amount of power in this industry say, we're not going to let you put any of our freight into, into public load boards. And um, if any of our freight is exposed there, then we're going to not do business with any of these brokers. I think that's a big risk for the brokerage industry. But the brokerage industry needs to hold the load board companies accountable because they're the only parties that the load board companies ultimately care about um, because th they need to step up. And this is this is the opportunity for them to do that. And I think we're seeing offerings like Convoy and a few others doing hybrid networks. It, it does feel like the problem is happening at the periphery. So you're going to see brokers take advantage. Because, I mean, if I was a broker and I posted on that, customers would look. You're right. Savannah to Dalton, they find out. And they say, why are you posting it up? All right. Kind of... But looking let's at, think about this. Yeah. So, so when when you buy a transaction on Stripe, or I go onto a when I, when I'm using one of the networks, so Stripe is a merchant processor, yeah, which lives inside a Visa and Mastercard. It effectively routes the transaction, but they have their own levels of fraud mitigation on their end. But one of the things that it looks at is IP address, and does it does it actually actually has it seen historical patterns of fraud from this IP address? or from this set of patterns and how transactions flow. And that information is available to the merchant to make a determination on whether they want to do business. But there's a point, there's a threshold when Stripe says, and Visa MasterCard would do the same, when Stripe says, I'm no longer going to accept these transactions. They will actually say that this th these set of transactions look highly suspicious. Um, we've seen a lot of charge off uh, associated with it. And because of that, we're no longer going to allow transactions uh, that have met this pattern to be authorized. They've taken the step. It can disrupt a merchant who maybe who has business to a lot of sort of offshore locations, but it's the same thing. It's the IP address verification that's important. There's also things that the load boards can do around verifying the documents are legitimate, making sure that the email address matches up to what's in the uh, FMCSA records. So there's a lot of things that can be done, um, but this is an issue that the load board companies should make the investments. And they're the only parties that can actually do this. The individual brokers don't have enough power over the market to actually do that. Uh, the carriers certainly don't, but the factoring companies also don't. It's this massive concentration, this oligopolic structure that exists between DAT and truck stuff. They're the only parties in the industry that can actually solve this problem. 
and looking at that types of fraud and phishing, we've talked about the double brokering schemes, but additionally now newer ones are where they're sending emails and they're trying this to one's a This one has actually popped up fairly recent. So I heard about it a couple of months ago. Um, that some of the largest trucking companies that own freight brokerages have had this problem. And apparently the executive teams uh, have been talking about this problem that existed as they realize that they have a major issue. And effectively the way it works is um, you... You basically are taking documents from a legitimate carrier. So the nice part about being that all this stuff is public record is it makes it easy to, to get access to it, but also means that it's also easy to get access to. And for a would-be criminal, that makes it incredibly easy to access. So they go and take credentials and information, registration information, M, uh, you know, uh, MC number, all that information, um, and they basically take that information and uh, create a phantom company that looks exactly like the legit company that you think it is. Sort of like the old rule, if you wanted to change your identity because you're a criminal, you would yeah. you find someone who died and take their uh, social security number and date of birth and you would become that person. It's a very similar sort of uh, transaction. In this case, it could be an active carrier. It could be a carrier that's no longer active, that still has those documents, or no longer running, that still has the documents. And effectively, they change the name of it slightly. And so they use a different URL that looks like it. So when, the, when they're reaching out to a broker about a load to double broker, what they've actually done is they're using a slightly different modification of the email. We get them all the time. Yeah. Think about this. is people email FreightWave or FreightWaves or C Fuller or something, and it looks like it says, hey, I'm Craig Fuller. I need you to do a wire transfer or some, some nonsense. Um, it's the same kind of scam is they look as if it's a phishing campaign. They look as if there's someone else that they're not. And so the broker who's doing, you know, 10, 20, 100 loads a day is not catching this. And so they broker the transaction. They broker the load out to the carrier thinking that it's a legitimate carrier that they have in their system. And then all of a sudden, a truck shows up because it gets loaded onto a load board. A truck shows up, or it doesn't get loaded onto a load board, and that truck is in cahoots with the the scammer. Yeah. And effectively, they go pick up the load, and then all that cargo just disappears into the ether. Nobody ever knows what happened to it. So yeah. there's a lot of theft, and that is exposing a lot of the uh, large shippers and their cargo to theft because once the, load, the driver comes picks up the load— that cargo never actually shows up. It's stripped and sold in black market. So I don't even have to, because cartel activities would scope out DCs and high crime areas, parts of California, Florida, ports of entry. Nowadays, you can be even more clever and you can just steal the documents, Photoshop some stuff and upload it. Because a lot of times you're just asking for a carrier packet and I just need a screenshot, send it in. And I'm then, in Serbia. I'm yeah. in, I mean, I'm in Colombia. I'm in Brazil. I'm in, you know, it doesn't matter what country I could be in. I could be in somewhere in the United States and effectively... What I'm doing is, as you point out, is I'm using fake information and then I'm finding someone to go pick up the load so that I can strip the cargo. Now, it could be a situation where I go find someone to pick up the load and the driver is it's naive about the, the, tra the theft. Effectively, when they're in transit, they get notified, hey, the delivery location has changed. They think the entire time they're talking to a legitimate broker. It happens. Then. New stop at it. But all the time. All the time. But this also can be a situation. So that seems like a very safe kind of way to commit fraud. Yeah. Like there isn't a human that's on the ground that you can sort of pen to. The driver is somewhat naive. It feels like if I were a criminal, that's how I would do it. But there are some situations where 
the drivers are working in uh, cahoots or actually a part of the whole scam that will end up selling the cargo altogether. And here's the problem is that these crimes themselves um, tend to be crimes that are very difficult to prosecute. When the large carriers that, that we have spoken with have gone out and reached out to the authorities, the authorities look at it and say, hey, this is a legitimate, looks like a legitimate transaction. The BOL looks le- like all this stuff looks legit. This seems like a civil matter where the load was never delivered, not a criminal matter. And so it's very hard for them to prove that that isn't who they said it was or that when they, that, that transaction took place, that isn't that that it was not a legitimate carrier. It was a phantom carrier. So now it's an insurance problem. Now insurance it's an insurance right. problem. It's a theft problem. But the problem is or the issue is that, the, again, the authorities don't consider this like crime. They consider it a, a, a civil matter, and I think that's the problem. Now, if they can prove that it's a crime, that's one thing, but it's quite, quite difficult to do that. You think it's possible? I know some authorities, local jurisdictions, get a cut of recovered stuff. Maybe there's incentivization with pay. Is that possible? Maybe you can get a few departments to try it, or is it normally something where I don't have the manpower? You see it at truck stops. They don't even go on private property and serve reports anymore. They just say, oh, it's a civil problem. You backed into it. I, I think a lot of that's true. I mean... Police forces around the country are largely underfunded. We have a major violent crime problem throughout the country, which is far more serious. You know, if you go rob a bank, let's put this perspective. If 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 somebody were to go rob a bank, they're probably going. There's going to be a lot of police that go out and search for that person. The person may walk out with twenty five thousand, forty thousand dollars. I don't know. I haven't robbed a bank, but that's sort of the <laughs> like the number aren't there aren't that impressive compared to the to the amount of time you'll serve in prison. You're caught on video and your chances of escape are actually quite small. Like bank robbers get caught. That's just sort of how it is. All of a sudden, the police is out looking for you. The currency is relatively easy for them to track, or at least uh, there's parts of it that are easy to track. So you think about that. Someone's going to rob a bank and get, you know, $50,000 to $100,000. Sounds great. But let's imagine if we committed the same crime stolen a truck. So that if I could rob a bank, I may get seven to 10 years. If I go steal a truck, because I'm armed robbery, right? Yeah. If I go steal a truck or hijack a truck, I might get a couple of months. And so this is a very lucrative, the risk reward is so in favor. And the chances of, of the authorities coming down on me, it could be relatively small. The The chances of of having to serve signi- like significant time in prison relative to the upside for the crime is actually quite small. That's what blows my mind. Just the ability, there's the means and the opportunity and the lack of penalties that get involved. For talk a lot about freight tech, talking about opportunities. If load boards are going to fail to take up the mantle, do you think a stripe or somebody will come in? What are some things that stripe you would never? I mean, let's just be frank. Yeah. Um, we're not going to see a situation where um, a stripe or a MasterCard or Visa are going to create load matching products. I mean, load board business um, and any of the freight tech businesses that we learn, if you look at the most successful founders in freight tech, at least this is a really important point that I want to point out. The most successful founders that we have in freight tech that have actually sort of reached a point of scale, not the early stage guys that are still sort of fighting it out, but if you look at the ones that have been really successful, have created sustainable companies, they all have one thing in common and, and largely one thing in common is they have worked in the industry or they have worked around the industry for a long time. This is not an in, this is not a business where you can sort of come in from the outside and all of a sudden create a, a business model around it. Even Shopify, which arguably is a very successful e-commerce platform, 
found that partnering with Flexport was a better outcome for the Shopify merchant experience, but also for their business. I think fundamentally, if Shopify thought that they could build and scale it organically, they would have done that. But they think they found a lot of upside in partnering with Flexport. Let them take on the responsibility because managing freight is quite expensive. So I don't think we'll see companies outside of the space come in and try to uh, disrupt the existing load boards. I think it will come uh, when uh, it comes, it will come from companies or uh, founders that are from our space. They they will be the ones that sort of attack this problem because you have to understand the nuances of it. Um, building a, a marketplace uh, is quite difficult if you don't understand the nuances of it. And final thoughts here. Uh, looking ahead, economy, freight volumes, when we see the down cycle, do you think more attention will be made to combat this now that it's not crazy to find capacity or thoughts looking ahead is this going to get better or worse i think the only way to bring attention to it is to be discussing it and to be open about it and to be bringing it out um i think the journal did a good job of coming out with their article about it because they brought broad awareness they didn't go into a lot of sort of description there wasn't a lot of sort of like how is this happening like it was a very sort of summary hey fraud basically double brokering boom one little description for most people to sort of understand it i think in order to really affect it and fight it, we have to have an open conversation about it. We have to be honest about the limitations that the government is going to do. The FMCSA is, you know, the DOT, the Department of Transportation is not going to take this issue serious. There's a lot of other issues they should be taking serious uh, in addition to this. And so I think the only way to do it is our industry and the technology vendors that are in it have to do it themselves. They need to step up and we need to hold them accountable to that. Accountability is key, Craig. Thank you so much. That's going to be a wrap for today's show that we're unfortunately out of time. You can catch this on Apple and Spotify as well later this afternoon. We'll also be live next week at 1 p.m. This is Thomas Watson for Loaded and Rolling with Craig Fuller. Thanks again. We'll catch you next week.